in our modern society, the overriding need people have is the need to be seen. Or more accurately, people need to be witnessed. I think an unhealthy craving to be noticed has emerged. In general, to want to be seen as a normal human desire. In a recent interview, a psychologist and an expert on the subject of narcissism and psychopathy, Sam Backnan said this, to be seen affirms one's existence in the world. It validates our emotions and aspirations. Without being seen, you feel annulled. If you are not seen, you are dead. To be seen is an integral part of our psychology from birth. We know that based on scripture that we're created for a community. God said it's not good for us to be alone, right? That we need to be seen by someone who is like us. The stability of our emotions as well as our psychology depends on that. If people are not seen, they will even prostitute themselves to anyone who will see them, even if those options include being objectified and mistreated. They'll be maybe less discerning uh, and discriminating about the types of relationships that they engage in. For example, when the children of Israel believed that God didn't see them and care for them, they were actually willing to go back to Egypt to oppression and enslavement back in Exodus 14, 12. So to be forgotten was worse than being abused. People will fight to be remembered, to always be in someone's purview. Today, people are trying to fend off more than just a mere loneliness, but a kind of existential loneliness. Nowadays, the need to be seen has risen to extreme proportions. Because of the explosion in our population numbers, I mean, we've got seven plus billion people on the planet, but also the breakdown of established, long-standing social frameworks, people feel less known and more alone than ever before. The disintegration of the family, community, and other social institutions has left countless starving for attention. And so to compensate for that scarcity of being seen and therefore valued, a mass movement in the pursuit of celebrity has, been, has ensued. Celebrity. Celebrity just means someone who has greater visibility than most. Celebrity has historically been reserved for the few, for the elite. There's always been a celebrity culture, but nothing near the volume and the desperation that I think we see today. And with the advent of the internet and social media, the masses have access and opportunity to celebrity not available before now. Being famous is no longer relegated to a minority of exceptional individuals. People are famous simply for being famous. Being seen has necessarily become its own art form. Many are attempting to perfect the skill of being seen. Today, if you don't stand out, you are left out. Everyone wants to be seen because now everyone can be seen. Now, the focus is on image manipulation and image management. We've become an optics and appearance-based culture. And so the race is on to see who can garner the most attention. Now, do you all think that the church is immune from what I consider to be a recent attention-seeking phenomenon? As far as I can tell, I don't think so. Attention-seeking and image-sculpting 
is a sinful human uh, proclivity and propensity. That is true for us today, and it was true for those in the scriptures. So, turn in your Bibles, if if you're already there, to the book of Galatians. We just read Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 through 2.14. And we're going to start, I'm going to focus quickly on uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 to set the stage. But then we'll look at the events that led up to this point in Paul's letter. That particular passage in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, contains the confrontation between the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter. And and Paul recounts the incident for the church at Galatia, and he tells them that he confronts Peter at at the city of Antioch because Peter distanced himself from the Gentiles when James, Jesus' brother, uh, and his disciples showed up to the party. Peter was socializing and having a good time with his other brothers and sisters in the Lord, but when James and his entourage showed up, he apparently was more concerned about his image and how he would be seen by the rest of the Jews who were of the circumcision party. And so Peter changes his stripes and removed himself from the other Gentiles. And of course, with Peter being the leader of the church, it stands to reason that uh, others would follow suit. Paul says that the rest of the Jews, as well as his boy, his friend Barnabas, were led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. So Paul has to call him out and says that Peter's conduct was not in step or aligned with the truth of the gospel, the new covenant that was inaugurated. The gospel was at stake. Paul couldn't allow his brother to get away with his hypocrisy because it misrepresented the work of Christ. And it stood to set a harmful precedent for the church going forward. The gospel has to be preserved rightly, truly, or truthfully, accurately for the people of God then and for you and me today. We know that the gospel is not for a select few. And that it is in and of itself good news that we, you and I, who were once not God's people, have now become his people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to come to this passage from a slightly different angle. I want us to ask this question, not about Peter, but about Paul. And that's this. How did Paul muster up the courage and have the audacity, the boldness, the temerity to confront the leader of the church, the rock, Peter, publicly? That took a lot of guts. Or maybe something more than guts. What would it take for you to confront Let's say, Pastor Jim, publicly, if you believe that he said or did something that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Don't get nervous, Jim. (laughs) Or I could ask myself that question, right? What would it take for me to confront, you know, I go to the Summit Church, Pastor J.D. Greer, who's also the president of the SBC, to face, to his face and before an audience, that he was somehow misrepresenting Jesus. It's like, whoa, whoa. Just the thought of that makes me nervous. I'm scared. I don't even have anything, any reason to be scared about right now. <laughs> Think of the backlash, the vitriol, the hate emails, the Twitter and Facebook beatdowns that you might get. You might even get thrown out of the church or come under church discipline. You get my drift. Paul knew what he was up against and what the potential repercussions could be if he didn't stand his ground. And thank God he did. 
He didn't concede. He didn't acquiesce. But still, what did Paul draw upon that allowed him to be so direct and so incisive? Essentially, what we're asking is, how did he get there? How did Paul get there? Well, the first one and a half chapters of the letter to the Galatians explains that and answers that question for us. And the answer is this. Paul, through salvation in Christ, learned to care less about the opinions and the approval of others in order to preserve the gospel for the church, for you and I. So the title of the sermon, as is in your bulletin, is Man's Admiration or Gospel Preservation. When you look back at what Paul says from the very beginning of this letter and how he addresses the issues in the church, we see in chapter 1, according to verses 6 through 10, that many Christians there were being coaxed and cajoled to turn away from the gospel to a different gospel. Some, Paul says, are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Who was doing this and why? Well, there was a a bunch of conservative Jews who came to Galatia after Paul had shared the gospel and had established the church there. They were legalizers who came from Jerusalem, and they were claiming to be disciples or disciples from the apostle James, again, Jesus' brother. Essentially, they were telling the Gentile Christians there that Paul's doctrine was wrong. They contended that the Gentiles needed to come under the law of Moses in order to be saved, that they didn't just need Christ to be saved, they needed Moses too. They not only needed grace, they also needed the sign of the old covenant, which was circumcision. In addition, they were saying that Paul wasn't a real apostle, that he was preaching a gospel, that the gospel that he was preaching wasn't directly revealed to him by Christ, but through other men. And on top of that, they were also accusing Paul of preaching a false gospel by suggesting that the Gentile Christians didn't need to obey God's law at all that the law was somehow abolished according to Paul's preaching. Paul had to show that the issue was not one of who does or does not keep the law, but rather on the basis that God reckons sinful man righteous according to Christ's death and resurrection. So the main issue that Paul was fighting against on behalf of the church was the salvation by works rather than a salvation by grace. And it was these false teachers themselves who were attempting to undermine Paul so as to separate the Christians from him and from Christ. Paul, as you can imagine, was irate and beside himself. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you all are so quickly turning to a different gospel. In other words, in our vernacular, we might say, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? His tone throughout his letter suggests a disposition of indignation and perplexity. You ever care so deeply about someone who you knew was about to make a huge mistake? Some of you parents know that feeling with your children or with your teenagers. Some, if not all of us, have had relationships and do have relationships that are extremely important to us. And when we see one of our loved ones heading toward a cliff by making a decision or choice, that is more costly than they realize, that can be extremely painful, extremely painful. And you're overcome by this deep sense of love as well as anger and sadness all at the same time. And you just want to shake that person and say, please don't do this. You beg them and you implore them, don't do this. 
That's the position that Paul was placed in. He was undone. You have to remember that these churches that Paul was planting, he was heavily invested in. He knew. He was like, rather, uh, they were like his children, and he was a father figure to them. He knew what was at stake if he didn't do something about what was taking place there. The church was being troubled by those who were distorting the gospel. So Paul was writing to the church to set them back on the straight and narrow by refuting the accusations made about him and more importantly about the gospel that he was preaching. Because if the Jewish legalists were successful, not only would Paul be discredited, but so would the gospel. So he said, look, first of all, I didn't receive the gospel from men, but through a direct revelation from Jesus Christ, referring, as we all probably know, his uh, conversion on the Damascus Road and the years following that Jesus taught him directly. He says, everything that I've told you and that I have taught you came straight from Christ himself. Paul was a legit apostle, called by God on par with the other apostles. He had a bona fide authority to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just like Peter, James, John, and the rest were set apart to preach the gospel to the Jews. It's why the very first verse of his letter in his opening greeting says what? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You know, I took a moment in preparation for this sermon just to kind of thumb through Paul's letters. And in his greetings to the churches he was writing to, the letter to the Galatians was the only one that begins with that statement. It's the only one. And then Paul repeats this in verse 11, as we read in verse 12. You see it there. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's important to know, too, that Paul was not trying to keep all the Christians for himself. He wasn't clamoring to lose his members to another church the way maybe some might do in the modern church today because they need as much attention and as many followers as possible to validate them. Paul was not self-promoting or trying to amass some sort of huge following because he needed to be accepted. He says as much in verses 8 through 10, but even if I, even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you before, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? Because if I was trying to still please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul throws himself under the bus if it means preventing the Christians there from turning to a false gospel. He basically says, by me telling you that even if I change my tune and come preaching to you a different gospel, don't follow me, who am I trying to please by doing that? In other words, if you've got to walk away from me in order to keep Christ, so be it but don't walk away from the true and only gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ, or follow me as I follow Christ. From his standpoint, the opposite would also be true. If I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. 
If I'm not following Christ, don't follow me. Paul wasn't holding tightly on to whatever acclaim that he or celebrity that he had attained. If he were self-serving and self-seeking and a narcissist, he absolutely would be fighting not to lose a single one of his followers. He didn't care about that. Interestingly, by contrast, that's exactly what the false teachers cared about. That's exactly what they cared about. In both, cha- in both chapter 4, verse 17, as well as in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, Paul tells the church about the selfish motives behind their seduction and their false teaching. He basically tells them they're manipulating you and using you. They don't care about the state of your soul and your eternal salvation. The only reason why they're turning to you, trying to turn you rather, is so that they can boast in your flesh. They want to report back to their superiors about how many foreskins or how many circumcisions they've been able to collect. They're trophy hunters. They're predators. It would be the equivalent today of churches deliberately reporting, let's say, mass conversions and baptism as a sign of a success of their ministry rather than bringing glory to God. Paul says, you're being played. You're being played. And on top of that, they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want an easy gospel that makes them feel good. They hate the cross and the message of the cross because they cannot boast in themselves. The cross is humbling, and they need their pride to survive. You know, many whom I counsel struggle with identity and security-related issues. They're brought low with anxieties because of their desperate need for approval. Their sense of self-worth depends on constant affirmations. This is true from what I found for both pastor as well as parishioner alike. You know, in recent decades with the the televangelists and the megachurch pastors has given rise to a Christian celebrity. It's become increasingly difficult to ascertain whether today's pastors are pursuing ministry for the sake of the gospel or for their own self-promotion. I believe many pastors themselves are unsure. The two intents have become intense, have become eerily synonymous. Where one ends and the other begins is not self-evident. And this incongruity is really discussed. It's in the air, undetectable, ambient, but it's luring many Christian and Christian leaders toward a path uh, uh, towards self-worship in the name of Christ. That was your commercial break. One of the other methods Paul uses to fight the accusations made against him and bring the church back was his own personal history. He says, y'all know my story. Before I became a Christian, I was a gangster. I was a religious zealot, a fanatic, ride or die for Judaism. You couldn't tell me anything. I was so extremely zealous and devoted I would resort to violence in order to uphold my traditions. Paul was an enforcer. He was the muscle. He was killing Christians. He wasn't reveling in that. His point in sharing that was this, that these pretenders who are peddling a false gospel, I got them beat. I was the real OG. Y'all know what that means, right? Okay. (laughs) 
and they're trying to convince you, the church, that I received this from men and that I was trying to please people, please, you better take that someplace else because that ain't working here. Nice try. See, the only way Paul, before he was Saul, would have ever departed from his Jewish roots was if God himself came down from heaven and revealed himself to him. Paul was that guy. And that's exactly what happened, of course, right? Somewhat ironic. In verse 15, though, Paul testifies to his conversion and says, But when God set me apart before I was born, called me by grace, and revealed his son to me, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and I saw Peter for several days. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. And James, Jesus' brother, for a few days. And what I am writing to you, I'm not lying, he says. He makes that disclaimer again because he's trying to reassure the church that the gospel that he was preaching didn't come from the other apostles. Verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Here's the kicker. Paul went three years after becoming a Christian without being known. Think about that. To think that the most widely recognized and influential Christian to have ever lived was unknown for a lengthy period of time. Sorry. He lived in obscurity for many years prior to his famed missionary journeys. He had dropped almost completely off the radar. The Christians in Judea were only getting wind that Paul, who used to persecute the church, was now preaching the gospel. Paul could have been an instant celebrity. He, would have, he could have milked his apostleship and gotten scores of people to fawn over him. But his unwillingness to be put in the limelight made room for God to rightly be glorified. And so it happened that the people glorified God, not Paul, precisely because of his more secretive and clandestine approach. What would it look like for more Christians to be content with being unknown? Something that's very important to remember about Paul that we mentioned a moment ago is that he was a Pharisee. He was, in fact, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Do you remember what Jesus says about the Pharisees? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, as well as Matthew 23, Jesus indicts the Pharisees for being hypocrites. He tells his disciples, don't be like them because they do everything to be seen. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen, for, for, uh, be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Oh, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say, they have received their reward. Oh, and by the way, and when you fast, do not look gloomy and disfigure your faces like the hypocrites that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their awards. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat to pra so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. They preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So for Paul, 
to do a complete 180 is completely act, uh, uncharacteristic, both of him as well as his kin. In his former life before Christ, he would have relished all of that attention. Paul used to be like the Judaizers and the legalizers. He remembers what it was like to be ruled by appearances and by externals. He gloried in it. But after he met Jesus, he crucified his selfish and worldly desires and replaced it with Christ and Christ alone. Now, you all might think that three years is a long time. How about we add another 14? That's a total of 17 years. And during that time, Paul went to the Mecca of the church, the city of God, Jerusalem, twice. Just twice. The place where all the big names were, all the people of influence, where all the decisions were made about policy and, and how the faith was to be enacted. That's like if Paul were alive today, he would be passing on, I don't know what, the Gospel Coalition, Promise Keepers, Southern Baptist Convention, or any other major church or denominational conference year after year after year. He'd just be clicking no or maybe on the Evites. <laughs> right? You know conversations were happening like, maybe Paul will come this year. And someone else responds, doubt it, but a man can always dream, right? <laughs> when Paul finally decides to attend, he did so, as he says, because of a revelation and thought, you know what, it's been long enough. I need to go and meet with the leaders of the church and let them know what the Lord has been doing. I need to be held accountable. I want to make sure that I have their support. Don't mistake Paul's inconspicuousness and his isolation as rebellion. Okay? He wasn't a control freak. He didn't act like he didn't need anyone or like he could do the church by himself. He, didn't care. he did care about people's thoughts and opinions in some ways, but not at the expense of pleasing God. And so he wanted to speak to Peter and James and John and the rest of the apostles for his ministry to be evaluated and to be endorsed. But interestingly enough, four times Paul says upon meeting with them, they seemed influential. If you take a look at chapter 2, we read it. In verse, once in verse 2, twice in verse 6, and once in verse 9. In verse 6, for example... He says, and from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. You see that? Paul was deferential to those who had influence, but he didn't fawn over them. He didn't kowtow and go out of his way to ingratiate himself. He wasn't a people pleaser like that. Especially because in this case, the gospel and the health of the church was on the line. In fact, he says in verse 4, more brothers came in to spy out the freedom, their freedom and bring them into slavery through the works of the law by trying to get Titus, who was a Greek, to be circumcised. But not on Paul's watch. He said they did not yield even for a single moment. Why? so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for the church. The truth is this. Most times when we put on a face, and we all put on a face from one time or another, when we put on a mask and when we care more about our image and being liked 
and we act hypocritically, usually the gospel is not at stake. But sometimes it is. And if our practice is to constantly be liked and to seek the approval of others, when Jesus and the gospel is on the docket, if we think that we'll be able to stand when that time comes, we will not. So when we return to the confrontation between Peter and Paul, you see, Peter knew better. He didn't believe or agree with the Jewish legalists, but he succumbed to the pressure of those who were around him. And that's why he removed himself from the Gentile Christians. Boy, the things that we will do to fit in. You can know that something is wrong and still betray with your actions. The Christian life is not just about having the right theology. That's important or about knowing what to believe. We know that that's important. But our conduct also has to agree. Peter's conduct, his actions were not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul had to confront his brother publicly on his hypocrisy in the same way that he had to hold the line by not conceding to the legalizers who wanted to uh, make um, Titus, have Titus circumcised. The gospel had to be preserved. From a human standpoint, what would the church look like today had Paul not taken the stance that he did? Where would our faith be? What would our church services look like? We wouldn't be saved by grace. We, we would, but we wouldn't know it. The cross would be nullified. Our preaching would be some sort of hodgepodge or a mixture of grace and works that saves. Can you imagine the confusion that that would cause? And we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins without hope. And as bad as that would be, I'll do you one worse. What if Jesus let the pressure and the approval of others prevent him from going to the cross? What if he never told Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're not savoring the things of God, but of man, and decided not to set his face toward Jerusalem and complete the work that his father had told him to accomplish and had sent him to accomplish? What if Jesus became a puppet of the Pharisees? What if he stopped preaching, healing on the Sabbath, casting out demons, opening the eyes of the blind, every time the scribes and the Pharisees around him told him to. He wouldn't be the Savior that we know and love and have surrendered our lives to today. Jesus didn't receive glory from people. Praise God for that. He let nothing or no one stop him. And we're all here today with countless others, present and past, who have benefited from that more than words can express from his resolve and his faithfulness to us. Man's admiration will at some point collide with the preservation of the gospel. Who we revere will determine who we serve. What choice will we make when that time comes? Will we show partiality? Will we play the favorites? Remember this, for freedom Christ set us free. Do not be entangled again into a yoke or a bondage of slavery to men. Can we pray?